We are in a series called Paradise Lost, Paradise Restored. And through this Easter season, we have been focused on the many references in the Bible to gardens. Gardens are an important part of the biblical story, and as we have seen our story as well. Life began at creation in the Garden of Eden, and in the book of Revelation, life ends in the Garden of God. One day the Creator will restore His intention for us to live in paradise. In the middle of the Bible, we have the story of Jesus' life, the Messiah of God who suffered and died and rose again. And we discovered the past couple of weeks that some of these events in Jesus' last days occurred in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And the place where Jesus was buried, John says, was a garden. The first person to see Jesus after his resurrection, according to John, was Mary, who actually thought Jesus was a gardener. So our life and our salvation and our eternal life all come from the work of God, and it's all tied around a common theme. In the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, we learn how life in the Garden of Eden got so messed up. Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the serpent, and their ultimate desire wasn't just to walk with God, it was to be God. They weren't content being children of God, they wanted to be like God in every way. And so they took control of their lives, and they did the one thing that God told them not to do, and that was to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, paradise was lost. What was beautiful and righteous and holy became soiled and broken and corrupted by sin. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, and to this day we live in a world that is broken and filled with sin, and we were created to live in the king's garden, which means that there is a part of us that longs to return to a better place. There is a part of us that longs for life with God and for life the way God intended it to be lived. In the Old Testament, we see this longing to live with God and the longing God has for us to live with, uh, that God has to live with us demonstrated in the idea of the promised land. Now God called a man by the name of Abraham to leave his home and go to a land that God was going to show him and to give to him. And in this land, God promised to bless him. In Genesis chapter 12, the first five verses, we read these words. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sari, his nephew, Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran and headed for the land of Canaan. Now, later on, we hear this land described as a well-watered land, the garden of the Lord. In Genesis 13, 10, it says, Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zoar. The whole area was well-watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So the promised land was to be a place where God would bless his people and where God's people would be a blessing to the world. 
Now, in some sense, people would be returning to live in the Garden of God. And while for Abraham and his family, and later on for Moses and the people of Israel, the promised land was a specific geographic location, the original idea that God had wasn't so much a location, but a way of life. If we go back to Genesis 12, the land was simply going to be a place where God would bless Abram and his family and where they could be a blessing to others. The important thing wasn't the location, nearly as much as the way of life to to be experienced when we walk with God. It was going to be a place where love for God and love for others was going to be the way of all people. But let's be clear about this. The location God led them to was, in many ways, a lush and fertile region. In fact, when the people of Israel were returning to the Promised Land after their time in Egypt, they sent spies to check out the land. And this is what the Scripture says in Numbers, the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 13. You may remember this story. When when they came to the valley of Eshcol, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes so large that it took two of them to carry it on a pole between them. They also brought back samples of the pomegranates and figs. Now the Jezreel and Jordan Valleys, which make up much of the geographic area we think of as the promised land today, uh, were, were fertile and lush lands. And as you drive through this region, even today you see fields of grain and produce and orchards. It's a garden where everything grows, but the promised land was never meant to be just a location. At the end of Moses' life, he was taken up to the top of Mount Nebo and shown the entire promised land. And from the top of Mount Nebo today, you don't see all the just all lush green gardens. You don't see all fertile land with an abundance of vegetation that's out there in certain locations, but it's hardly what we would envision as the Garden of Eden, which tells us that the promised land was so much more than a specific location. It was all about life with God. It was about life the way God intended it to be for us. And in all of us, there is this longing, I believe, to return to that garden. We long for a life that's filled with God's grace and God's peace and God's goodness, and we all long, I hope, to be blessed by God and to be a blessing to others. Moses and the people of Israel did not enter into the promised land, uh, or they did enter into the promised land at one point, but they really never fully embraced the life that God had for them. So in time, they too were driven out. Just like Adam and Eve did not follow God, neither did the people of Israel, so they were driven out of the promised land. The nation of Israel was defeated by the Babylonians, and most of the people were taken into captivity and forced into exile. And while they lived in a foreign land, their hearts longed to go back to the garden of God. The prophet Isaiah wrote to the people of Israel living in the captivity, and this is what he said in Isaiah 51, the Lord will comfort Israel again and have pity on her ruins. Her desert will blossom like Eden her barren wilderness like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found there. Songs of thanksgiving will fill the air. Listen 
to me, my people. Hear me, Israel, for my law will be proclaimed and my justice will become a light to the nations. My mercy and justice are coming soon. My salvation is on the way. My strong arm will bring justice to the nations. All distant lands will look to me and wait in hope for my powerful arm. See, Isaiah is talking about restoring Eden and returning life to the people. But for Isaiah, that didn't mean returning to a specific location. It was with joy. He was describing a certain kind of life, and that promised land was a place to be filled with joy and thanksgiving and gladness, and all the trees that bring life to the people were justice and righteousness and salvation. So the promised land is not just a location. It's an idea. And it is an ideal The idea is that God's garden is more than what we can see with our eyes. It is a way of life that passes our highest hopes and dreams. It's a place of joy. It's a place of gladness. It's a place of thanksgiving. And the ideal is that God's garden is a life that we're all called to. to. It's a life called uh, where we are called to live in a kingdom that we're we're to help work towards, a place of justice and righteousness and salvation. The promised land is the life we long to live, and what this life looks at like will be a little different for each of us. I think for some of us here, the longing is to live in a world where all children are loved and cared for. For others among us, the focus might be a world in which there's racial uh, reconciliation or economic justice. For some, the idea of God's garden is primarily a place where families are held together in love, where people are being drawn to God. And while we might long for all of this and more, in each of us there is this dream of what life is to be like. We're created to live in God's garden, which means that in each of us there is a longing to experience the fullness of life uh, that we can have with God and the life that God wants us to live. We currently don't live in paradise, but we can still long for it. We still need to work toward it. Ron Heifetz is um, an author who talks a lot about developing leaders. And he has this great illustration that can help us, uh, I think, uh, get a picture of this whole concept. He talks about a baseline. See, a baseline uh, that represents life now. And this is where we live with all of our problems, all of our brokenness uh, that we see around us. And he draws a, a, this uh, line across the bottom. It's the baseline. But then he draws another line, and that's up here. That's a line above that represents where we would like our life to be. This is the life in the promised land. But between the two lines, he illustrates that there is a gap in the middle And while we live along the bottom line, we long to make our way to the top line. We long for God. We long to experience the fullness of life. And in leadership, Heifetz says, that it's the role of the leader to help move people from here to here. It is the role of the leader to help move people from here to there. The role of the church is to help move the world from, um, in the same way, to move from paradise lost to paradise restored. Our role just isn't to long for paradise. 
but to help people see that, that, uh, this life and to help make that ideal, that dream a reality. It is to help move the needle closer to the promised land. And every time we lift up a vision of what God has called us to be or to do, we are moving the needle toward the promised land. Every time we pray for and work for the world to become a more beautiful place, we are moving the needle toward the promised land. Every time we dream big dreams about how this community can be better and plan to make that happen, we are moving the needle toward the promised land. Every time we give generously to help those in need or provide for our church's ministry to the people around us, we move that needle toward the promised land. Every time we support a mission team or provide scholarships to send kids to summer church camp, we're moving the needle toward the promised land. So the promised land is always calling out to us. We long to experience its beauty and its power, but it's also a dream and a reality we need to go out into the world and continue to work toward. Over the years, one of the ways that Jan and I have found to move the needle closer uh, to our goal of helping to build the kingdom of God in the, on this earth is to personalize a phrase you've heard before. You've heard me use it lots of times. We are blessed in order to be a blessing to others. And we personalize that in our own, uh, by, in our own life, and, and we've taught that to our kids by personalizing, I mean, uh, we've learned to give away a significant portion of what God has given to us because it moves the needle closer to the promised land. Let me tell you a story that maybe illustrates this point. One day, an, uh, a woman had finished her shopping at a grocery store, and she was returned to her car only to find four young men inside of her car. She dropped her shopping bag, she drew a handgun from her purse, and with a forceful voice, she said, I have a gun and I know how to use it. Get out of my car. The young men did not wait for a second invitation. They got out and they ran like crazy. Now the woman understandably was shaken and quickly tossed her shopping bags and got into the car and loaded her shopping bags into the car. And she got in and she just wanted to get out of there as fast as she could, but no matter how hard she tried, she could not get that car started. And then it hit her. This isn't my car. She looked and indeed her car was parked four or five spaces away. She got out, looked around to see if the men were anywhere near. She loaded the bags into her own car and she drove to the police station to turn herself in. The desk sergeant, after hearing her story, nearly fell out of his chair. And he pointed to the other end of the counter where there were four young men reporting a carjacking by a woman with glasses and curly white hair, less than five feet tall and carrying a very large handgun. Here's the point. She thought it was her car, but it really belonged to somebody else. What a great truth this story teaches us about God owning everything. See, God owned that woman's car and the one she mistakenly got into, and he owns everything that we call 
ours. He owns it all. Look at what David said in Psalm 24. The, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him, for he laid the earth's foundations on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. The Old Testament prophet Haggai narrows the focus a little bit. He talks about God's possessions of wealth. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of heaven's armies. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that God not only owns the world and its wealth, he owns us as well. 1 Corinthians 6.19, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? See, the Bible is clear that God is the owner of all things. All that we have, we are just simply managers. Everything I have today comes from the hand of God. It's his. I own nothing. David said, the world and everything in it belongs to God. I'm not the owner of the things in my life. I am simply the manager. And if I believe that I am the owner, then I am constantly going to be in conflict with God over what I do with the things that I have. But when I finally understand that the Lord is the owner and I'm only the manager, that conflict disappears and freedom overtakes my life. Let's look at it another way. If you, had, if you made $400 last week, how much of that $400 belongs to God? Now someone might say, Let's see, the church teaches about tithing. It's 10% of the $400, that's $40. No, it's a trick question. Tithing's a good thing, don't get me wrong. Uh, we do teach it as a biblical principle, uh, but it, the story, the point of the story is all of it belongs to God. It all belongs to God. All that we are and all that we have is ultimately God's. Some, someone here in our congregation recently told me that when he finally understood that principle, his whole life changed. It all belongs to God. Look at the question that Paul poses in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it's not a gift? You know, the implied answer to the first two questions Paul asks is nothing. We don't have anything. We don't own anything that hasn't already been given to us by God. And the, third, the answer to the third part of that is we shouldn't be boasting. Deuteronomy chapter 8, he did all of this so that you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant that he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. You see, as a manager, we have a responsibility before God. If God is the owner, then I'm the manager whom, uh, who has to be trusted with his property. I must learn to think, therefore, like a manager. A manager oversees the owner's assets. For the owner's benefit, a manager carries no sense of entitlement to the assets he or she manages. The job of the manager is to find out what the owner wants, done with his assets, and then carry out the owner's will. And this understanding affects us three ways. First, when we understand that principle, we finally learn to give abundantly. 
King David at one point was perhaps one of the most powerful men on earth. And he understood this owner-manager relationship. After receiving a tremendous offering, David responded to God this way. He said, but who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you and we give only what you have first given us. David was thinking like a manager, not an owner. Jerry Caven is a man who has successful restaurant chain. He had two, owned two banks, a ranch, a farm, some real estate ventures. And at 59, Jerry was about to retire. He was searching for a nice lakeside retirement home. But the Lord, his owner, had other plans for him. And he writes, God led us to put our money and our time into ministry, overseas ministry, missions. It's been exciting. Before we Uh, before we gave token amounts to God. Now we put a substantial amount of money into missions. And we even often go and spend time serving in places like India. When asked what changed his attitude toward giving, the answer came quickly. He said, once we understood that we were giving away God's money to do God's work, we discovered a peace and a joy we have never had, we never had when we, back when we thought it was ours. Secondly, we can, when we understand the owner-manager principle, we learn to give sacrificially. Second Corinthians chapter eight, the apostle Paul tells a great story about the Macedonian Christians and their sacrificial giving. And he says, now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it out of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift For the believers in Jerusalem, they even did more than we hoped for, for the first action was to give themselves to the Lord and then to us, just as God wanted them to do. How could these people give so generously in their extreme poverty? The answer is they didn't see poverty as an exemption from giving. They simply refused to miss out on the satisfaction of giving sacrificially. And then finally, when we understand the owner manager principle, we learn to give joyfully. You know, I've often wondered, why does the Bible say that God loves a cheerful giver? Well, joyful giving is a sign that givers understand that owner-manager relationship. Cheerful giving can only come from a heart that's set on the things of God, not on earthly things. God loves a cheerful giver because such givers are investing in heaven. We're investing in something that's going to reap eternal rewards. And when the tabernacle in the Old Testament was being built, uh, people got so caught up in their joy of this heavenly investment, they had to be restrained at one point from giving more. Exodus 36 says, finally the craftsmen who were working on the sanctuary left their work. They went to Moses and reported the people have given more than enough materials to complete the job the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave this command, and and this message was sent throughout the camp. Men and women, don't prepare any more gifts for the sanctuary. We have enough. How many churches today 
are preaching that message to their congregation. Hey, stop giving. Man, you got, we got too much. Not very many. So Exodus says, so the people stopped bringing their sacred offerings. Their contributions were more than enough to complete the whole project. Moses basically was, had to stand up and say, enough already. Here's the bottom line. We give because everything is God's to begin with. Scripture teaches us, both by mandate and model, that we're to give abundantly and joyfully and sacrificially, and God will hold us accountable someday for all that we call ours, because it's actually all His. And my prayer for us today is that we will properly manage all that God has put in our hands. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, teach us that we only keep what we give away. We've tried so hard to hoard things only to have them slip through our fingers. We've tried stinginess, but it hasn't worked. So teach us to be generous people. We thank you that we have everything that we need and we have more beside because you are a God who blesses us abundantly. So open our eyes to see what you are doing in the world. Save us from spending our lives building castles of sand and help us to give as you did when you gave everything to us through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.